Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Welcome if you've just tuned in. Coming up, our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be joining us live from the Algarve. We'll be property shopping. Also ahead, develops Stephanie Bolton and Charles Hecker from Control Risks are my studio guests going through the day's newspapers. Stephanie, hello. What have you spotted? I have spotted, among other things, and obviously we have to talk about Ukraine and the energy crisis, but the question of the Queen for the first time not receiving the new Prime Minister, uh, something we expect to happen this Tuesday, for the first time not in Buckingham Palace, but in Balmoral in Scotland. Frankly, who would blame her? Charles Hacker, what view spotted? Good morning. Bit of a howler across the front page of the Sunday Times saying, police fear hard winter of surging crime and civil unrest. Something to get ready for as you put your hat and scarf and gloves on. Brilliant. Can't wait for that either. Plus, we'll be hearing from our bureau chief in Tokyo, Fiona Wilson. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief. I'll be bringing you the latest from Japan. Then Andrew Muller will tell us about some of the week's stranger goings on. We learned this week that maybe former US President Donald Trump should stop hiring lawyers who blue-tack their business cards to the inside of bus station phone booths. That's all coming up on Monocle on Sunday, live from London. And a very good morning to you. How are you, Stephanie? I think we have to warn everybody that you've only got half an ear functioning here this morning after a big swim. <laughs> yes. I, I did a charity swim uh, on Saturday in the, in the docks, in the Royal Docks in, in London, and uh, my right ear still has quite a lot of water in there. What is it that would persuade you to get into that water? There's nothing on earth that would tempt me in there. <laughs> Uh, well, we all heard that people now, um, when during the pandemic, uh, uh, found their love for open water swimming, especially for women, Emma. It's very good. Cold water makes you happy. It's got a chemical process in your brain that uh, makes you very relaxed. Your breathing is good. You're stretching your body. You don't have any injuries. It's a very healthy thing to do. I recommend it very I think, much. I think I have the wrong brain. Charles, have you dived into any deep cold water recently? <laughs> the chemical process in my brain right now is being fueled by the cup of coffee in front of me and, and that's how most of my mornings start rather than with a, a cold swim. Um, I'm still running as I began uh, during the pandemic and um, I guess that gets my brain and the rest of my body in okay shape. Fit and trim and ready for the hour ahead and dipping his toes in the med is our editorial director Tyler Brule, who's in Portugal. Bom dia Tyler. Bom dia, good morning Emma. Not, not quite med yet. Um, It's not on the med. It's on the Atlantic, Emma. We have to get you an atlas. You're in the Algarve, aren't you? I need to... I, need I, to, I, I, you're I know. You're uh, in Spain in tomorrow, aren't you? Yes, there'll be, there'll be med uh, maybe some point uh, tomorrow or on, on Tuesday. No, it'll be a bracing Atlantic uh, at some point uh, over the course uh, of the day, but not, not quite yet. So where are you exactly? I'm in Tavira. So this is uh, just to the uh, east of Faro, Uh, at a lovely estate uh, and just having a little bit of a of a peek as you know Emma you've been party to uh, various tours uh, not just over the summer but over the years for that ongoing quest to find that perfect patch of sun in Europe uh, somewhere that you can go maybe 11 months of the year maybe 12 months of the year uh, which is well located the architecture is good uh, of course the cuisine should be great nearby there has to be a good sense of community An airport with, you know, a couple of connections to London and Zurich uh, a day would also be good. So uh, the um, I, I, I would say sort of the, the checklist um, is not an insignificant one. It's not, but it's a necessary one. And is Tavira ticking any of these boxes? 
Well, so far, yes. Uh, architecturally fantastic. I've not been into the city centre. We're staying to the place we're staying, which is a which is a, a wonderful property. It's part of what I believe is going to turn into an interesting group. This Pensao Agricola. They've got one property which is about ten years old. Another which is about three or four. They've now taken over um, another Quinta, which is absolutely stunning, nine rooms. But it's it's you know we're surrounded by uh, well actually a lot of avocados. It was actually interesting just talking to to the owners, just saying that avocados are like gold. Uh, that's particularly when it comes to what they can get away with with prices. Uh, yeah, all year round uh, in 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 northern Europe, I still think they're a bit perplexed by avocados on toast. Um, but they're happy uh, that, that this is something which continues to reign on breakfast tables, certainly not just in Europe, but all over the world. But, of course, their avocados tend to be heading uh, northward, but also limes and almonds uh, and, of course, all kinds of citrus fruits as well. So not, not quite city center and certainly not quite uh, the, the type I don't want a full um a full estate, at least not yet, Emma. Well, no, it's, it, you're sort of answering the the great question that we all play when we're on holiday. And I was talking with Stephanie and Charles before we came on air, which is you play the could I live here game every time you go somewhere. Um, and Stephanie, you asked the question, "Could what would I do when I got here? Could I actually live and work here? Stephanie, may I bring you in briefly? Could you run an avocado farm? Because I think you might have a co-opter on the line from Tavira at the moment who might be ready to jump in with you. I, I don't want to spoil Tyler's mood, but I have been to Tavira. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, but I happened to go on a bike tour through the area, actually with a young um, young man who was uh, giving us a, a more cultural, up-to-date current affairs tour, and he was saying the avocados are a big problem because they use so much water. Um, and, of course, especially here in England, everyone expects avocados to be cheap, that um, they have a massive problem, other farmers in this area, because they don't get water for other crops, and the avocados are now monopolising the whole the whole area. See, this is a well, they look like it. it? They look like it from here, definitely, Emma. I mean, the the avocados are looking incredibly perky, and of course, yes, we know there's a there is a water issue uh, with with avocados uh, for, for sure. But for probably the the, the the farmers or the landowners are happy. Uh, that the likes of of, of Waitrose uh, and and maybe and maybe other uh, the the Ikas and Copes in Sweden and elsewhere are, are certainly buying them. Brilliant, that's good to know. And obviously, you'll be investigating irrigation solutions while you're out in Tavira as well. What's happening in the world? What's happening where you are? Apart from obviously the the, the, the pressing avocado issues. Well, I mean, it is of course is an energy issue, like not just all over Europe, but uh, all over much of the world. And one of the interesting stories. Uh, that the um, Express is running with here today. And this is something we've, we've been hearing also on a recent trip to Germany, uh, heard this uh, also uh, in, in Switzerland as well. And this is a story about ceramics. And it's a story about, of course, companies which have kilns and ovens, and whether it, of course, is for making uh, dinner plates or casserole dishes, but also glassware as well. Uh, there's sort of the threat that they're going to have to be turning off the, the furnaces quite soon, or, and it goes back to, to what Stephanie was saying, or we're just going to have to learn how to, to pay more uh, for our, our tableware. Um, so it's, it's going to be one thing or the other. And of course, you know, Portugal has, at least until now, been able to compete on price. You know, we know that a lot of you know, large uh, European and international discounters, they do use, of course, the low wages uh, in Portugal, really because it, you know, it makes for a, a fantastic uh, manufacturing base. Uh, but, of course, all of this comes with cost. You've got Portugal on one side also you know, attempting to you know, drive up um, you know, 
very, very low uh, labor costs. This is an ongoing issue um, in, in the country for, for every political party. But of course, now this is compounded with the issue of what this means for a very core manufacturing base in Europe. Uh, and, and then, of course, also this extends to textiles as well, because it's not just an issue um, of, of, of just you know, water and water generation and energy, but also all of the heating costs that come with that as well. When you're dying, uh, when you're having to shrink garments, all of these things. So you know, these are two principal parts of Portugal Incorporated. You could say you know, much of this country's bounce back has been driven by its manufacturing base and a manufacturing base which goes directly to, I would say, daily retail, uh, the things that, that we need to either put on our shoulders, uh, to put in the corners of our rooms, uh, or to, to put on uh, our, our dinner tables as well. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you talked about Portugal's bounce back. In the last 10 years, out of any country that we always talk about here at Monaco, Portugal managed to seem to sort of get itself out of a mess really, really well by being incredibly nimble. Is there any sense here that Portugal might be able to, to do this? Or is this such an overwhelmingly general problem um, that, that, that you know, they're feeling a, a bit stuck? Well, I think there's two parts of it. Obviously, uh, it, it's going to have to be a, a European exercise to figure out what we're going to do when it comes to the issues of, of energy and energy, of course, whether it's going to be across the, the, this coming winter season um, and what lies uh, beyond. And obviously, our relation, uh, relations, of course, with uh, forces uh, east of where all of us uh, are, are broadcasting from uh, today. But then there's the other side of it, which is, of course, just the, the, the labor issue. Uh, here as well, and it was it was quite, it was fascinating talking to one of the property owners yesterday because Portugal they complain about uh, of course finding talent etc. But uh, they are also you know, because of, of, of various uh, treaties as well they are able to rely on their former uh, colonies. Uh, so they said that it is still very easy to bring in workers uh, from Cape Verde from. Uh, from Mozambique uh, and certainly from from Brazil uh, as well. But then, of course, you have to square that with then how, if that's happening, how are you then going to also bring everybody else along uh, if you're only looking for cheap labor? But then you say, well, also we want to bring, uh, of course, wages up for the Portuguese. Uh, it becomes um, something of a conundrum. And tomorrow is Spain, Tyler. Tomorrow is Spain. <laughs> have you ever been to Seville? I've never been to Seville, but it's, it's semi, semi en route. Uh, to making our way towards uh, towards Malaga, so um, yeah, I'm, we're going to we're going to stop through Seville. Any tips, Sam? Have you been? Um, Charles Hacker has just mouthed "gorgeous" at me. I don't know what okay, he means. Good. I don't know who he's saying that to. Whether it's to me, <laughs> to you, to Stephanie, or to Seville. And Stephanie's also wagging her finger, going "gorgeous" as well. Uh, Charles, we have Tyler ready with his with his pen and paper. It is the most perfect city to explore on foot, full of nooks and crannies and wild, winding alleys, and around every corner is an architectural or gastronomic surprise. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful place. Stephanie. Good. I, was, I was an Erasmus student in Seville, and if you like, controversial, but if you like bullfighting, go and have a look. It's beautiful. It's the most traditional place you can find for bullfighting. How's that, Tyler? I'm listen. I'm I'm all for I'm all for bullfighting. I'm all for keeping up for traditions, uh, even if they sort of go wide of what is uh, viewed as uh, today's politically not appropriate. Uh, makes it more interesting, probably. Um, but no, I'm I'm very much I'm very much looking forward to a bit of a Seville uh, tour uh, tour tomorrow, and uh, and then we'll we'll report in and uh, and see what we find property wise when we, when we cross the border. We're seeing some architects this afternoon, uh, an interesting trio of young women um, from both. Uh, from Faro, but also from Lisbon as well, 
done some fantastic projects. Um, do a little bit of a modernism tour, uh, also around around Faro today, um, and then we'll, we'll compare and comp- contrast and see what Andalusia has to offer as well. But uh, but back back in the seat in London, uh, no, actually not London. Back in the seat in Zurich by uh, by Thursday, Emma. Fabulous, thank you, Tyler. I think Tavira might just be have its moment eclipsed in a moment by Seville. Uh, we'll see. You can send me pictures of nice property there. That was our editorial director, Tyler Brule, on his travels. It's nine twelve here in London. Let's have a look at the papers. Well, my panelists have already been dishing out, um, well, swimming and tourism advice. Um, tell us who wants to kick off with the papers. What have you what have you found? I think um, Stephanie, you you've got a big big list of things to talk about. Yeah, we uh, of course we. I mean, the the, the very uh, topic we cannot escape is the the energy crisis, and it's all over the papers. Whether it's in the British papers, it's in in the German papers, which I obviously mainly read as well. And and the question, what comes out of the energy crisis? And um, and I think Charles also want to wants to pick that up. Is the question of. Um, how, how is patience of the public, is patience of people wearing thin? And I do think we are moving into a moment in Europe and beyond, which is very tense. Um, there have been already protests in Prague yesterday, 70,000 people demonstrating. Um, and there's a very, yeah, very uh, challenging mixture of left-wing and right-wing groups coming together and bringing t- uh, people on the streets. That was the thing that I noticed about Prague, wasn't it? That it was organised by the communists and the far right. Um, and the protest wasn't just against energy, energy bills. It was a more sweeping thing against the government, against NATO, against the European Union, against everybody, basically. Yeah, and it's um, it's the same in Germany. We are seeing now the first protests are starting in Germany on Monday. And it's again, it's by the unions, but it's also by the uh, right-wing wing um, party, um, AFD, Alternative für Deutschland. So, and, and in a way, it is a continuation of what we saw during the pandemic and the protests against lockdowns. It is that interesting thing, isn't it? That what now that we have had now that we have had a lockdown, when an enormous crisis lands on our doorstep, everybody now looks to governments to help, don't they? In a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done about three or four years ago. Well, and so far. Government is responding relatively quickly and in a relatively unified fashion. I mean, one of the things that everybody's looking for in government, especially in the European Union, but across Europe more broadly, is when is this all going to fall apart? And when has the when will the political, economic, and so far military cooperation, because let's not forget that this is all being driven by the crisis in Ukraine, um, when will that all come apart? And what we're seeing here is, is a gradual divorce, perhaps, in the unity that we're finding right now at the the highest political levels and what's happening down below. And, and Stephanie's right. There is something of a, of a pressure valve character to this kind of protest, exactly as you pointed out in the post-pandemic sort of way, when we could all go back onto the streets, we all did. And here's yet another driver that's not just about energy, but about everything else that is afflicting us at the moment. And so we'll have to see you know, whether the, the political height can keep this all together as the populations that they're supervising really start to, to push them in a completely different direction. Certainly, we have a very light touch here in the United Kingdom. We don't really have a prime minister until Tuesday. We'll come to that in a minute. But how are other countries dealing with this and handling against this pushback and, and, and genuine cries for help from people? Very in very different ways. I mean, some countries, for example, um, give subsidies uh, for uh, for uh, fuel and petrol or they, they are um, lowering the taxes on that. Uh, the, the, the challenge for everybody is to bring targeted 
subsidies are targeted state aid on the way because it's obvious that you can't do what you've been doing uh, in other crises which is universal giving universally money to to um, to households and companies and of course you but you see already like here in Britain Of course, business is saying, why do we not get help? And you, you, you hear the outcry everywhere, whether it's nurseries, whether it's, uh, whether it's pubs. So people have sometimes like 600% more energy costs to cover. And this is, this is all over Europe. So you will see not only people being afraid they can't um, pay their, their bills and can't heat their houses anymore, but actually a lot of companies going bust and small companies, especially because they don't have the money to pay the next uh, energy bill. Charles, what have you spotted? Um, I am fixated, really, on on the on the civil unrest question, um, and that is the huge splash across the front of of the Sunday Times. Um, you know, we can go to Politico. Also supports what Stephanie's been saying about promising emergency intervention to rein in energy prices. Um, we've got the FT all over the energy crisis. And, you know, the FT is also basically setting the table for the trust premiership, if you want to begin to sort of raise that topic. Um, they've got her intray laid out for her. They have her first few days mapped out for her. Um, and they call it the daunting intray facing Britain's next prime minister. Um, so there's quite a lot of challenges being set out very publicly for the prime minister appointee, perhaps um, at this moment, uh, uh, starting on Tuesday. Um, and it's something that's been, sort of people have been, like you said, setting the table for Liz Truss, haven't they? I mean, Rishi Sunak, apparently, they, he, was, he was joking on uh, a couple of days ago when he said, um, when someone said, he said, don't worry, I won't, I won't be jumping on a plane to California on Monday uh, as soon as the announcement comes out. And then he stops and pauses and goes, because the flights are cheaper on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> And this is a man who recognizes his future, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was talk about Rishi Sunak maybe even uh, getting a job in the cabinet, for, but for what at least is in the Sunday Times today, there's no mentioning of uh, Rishi Sunak being, being, being part of the cabinet. What I find striking, if you look at the potentialist, first of all, we don't know if it's going to be Liz Truss, and second, of course, we don't know if she becomes prime minister, who's going to be a cabinet, but let's say it's quite likely. It's a cabinet that is uh, very much, say, uh, full of Brexiteers, which leads us, maybe we talk about that later, the challenges in the relationship to Europe and things that are really on the agenda as well, especially the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, which uh, yeah, brings the risk of further friction between Europe and the United Kingdom in a time where really they need to be united. And we have, um, I think it was Andrew Marr yesterday was writing that we are looking at perhaps the most far-right government that the United Kingdom has seen for a very very, very long time. That's right. Um, you can see in the newspapers and in their websites, you can see all of the sort of William Hill and Ladbroke-like behavior on, on positioning people and, and taking bets on what Liz Truss's cabinet might look like. And you've got um, Tim Shipman, who writes for The Times, saying that the chancellor will be Kwasi Kwarteng, the foreign secretary will be James Cleverly, interestingly, not Tom Tugendhat. Um The head of the Home Office will be Suella Braverman, um, and um, so that and what you who you don't see here at all is Priti Patel, and so she's out, and you see Nadim Zahawi as head of the Cabinet Office. Ben Wallace stays in defense, a little bit of continuity there, and then the rest of it sort of becomes quite speculative. We should drop in, however, that Jacob Rees-Mogg 
is looking pretty firm as business secretary. Okay, that's going to take a little time to sink in. Um, Stephanie, I mean, how is the rest of the world anticipating the arrival of Liz Truss in number 10? I mean, we are, like you say, we can't guarantee it, but, um, you know, Rishi's already on Skyscanner to, to try and find out where you know, the, the next flight to Los Angeles. Um, but just, you know, what, what do the Germans, what do the French, what do the Italians think of, of, a, of a potential Liz Truss? First of all, just to say, it was quite interesting. I, I went to several hustings uh, to see them close up and uh, the last testing was uh, this week in London and uh, Rishi Sunak actually ran a video before he came on stage which was called The Underdog. So he kind of already had accepted that he was not going to win uh, which I found quite kind of weird. Why would you produce that kind of video? But he took it, he already is taking it with a pinch of salt uh, and tongue in cheek. Um, but talking to um sources in Brussels uh, and in Berlin, they don't really know who Liz Truss is. She became a bit more known because she was very good at um, styling herself the new Margaret Thatcher. You remember the photos on the tank, you remember the photo in Russia with the big fur head. Um, and she has been good at um, promoting herself with very strong worded uh, demands and headlines. Um, I think it's it will be seen coming back to the challenge of Northern Ireland and Britain saying either this is scrapped or we need really big concessions from Europe if they're going to do it. And if they and my sense is that they will not negotiate with the UK. Why? Because they think she might not be around for very long. Because Boris Johnson might make a comeback. It's funny you mentioned the idea of the engagement with the European Union. The FT was running a story yesterday saying that the EU is planning to invite the United Kingdom to a security summit. And it, the, the headline says it would be a test of the British appetite for engagement, which is the big question, isn't it? Alongside a sign of willingness to discuss the Northern Ireland Protocol. It, what does that suggest? Is the EU ostensibly reaching out its hand here? It, it, this is probably placing emphasis on cooperation rather than confrontation, perhaps in the run-up to the invocation of Article 16 or the rewriting of the Northern Iron Ireland protocols. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing that could, under normal circumstances, provoke a trade war. Um, these are not normal circumstances. And so both sides are probably um, interested in avoiding the worst case outcomes from all of this. And since the UK has been a very, very strong supporter of Ukraine and is a major player in European security, um, there's probably something to be gained from the EU's position in, in holding out their hand, as you demonstrated, Emma, and, and, and sort of reaching out. Um, just one thing of note in the American opinion that's forming of Liz Truss, because there was a big thing in the Washington Post today where they called Liz Truss a shapeshifter and have pointed out that she was once a member of the Lib Dems before she joined the Conservative Party and that she was a Remainer before she became a Brexiter. And they're saying this is a person who, as a result of political ambitions, has been quite opportunistic in the political positions that she occupies. And that's what's coalescing around Washington opinion right now. It's interesting to note to note that the Washington Post is is still interested in who's going to be the occupant of number 10. It, 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 dis, it actually does still remind us all of the of the importance of the United Kingdom on the world stage and having spoken to people in you know Brussels and France and what have you who have unilaterally said the United Kingdom is on the decline in terms of how much of a voice they hold in the in, in, in the world um, militarily perhaps differently but I was interested to see that you know the Washington Post is still really keen to find out who's going to be the next prime minister 
Of course, I mean this is it's the United Kingdom, and they are part of the uh, um, permanent as a permanent member of the Security Council. They have nuclear weapons, so of course the United Kingdom is a key country for uh, defense and security and geopolitical questions in the world. The, the question is, and I agree, Liz Truss has been very opportunistic. There's no difference to Boris Johnson. If you might be cynical, you might say it's just Boris Johnson a bit more uh, a bit more compromising and a, a less less big headlines and less columns in the Daily Telegraph. But the question is whether she has been a very smooth operator. You can't deny that. And whether she is capable of uh, unquestionably the absolute massive challenges she will encounter from the first moment in number 10 with the uh, cost of living crisis, energy bills, Ukraine, uh, you name it, if she would have the right people around to, to make this work. But everything we've seen until now, and it's the Financial Times damning front page of the weekend, is really it's not going to fly because what she's offering is actually not costed and not convincing. Incredible. Um, Chuck, you wanted to talk about Mikhail Gorbachev. I thought now that there's been a few days since his death earlier this week that this was a chance to sort of look back with a little bit of perspective on Mikhail Sergeyevich and, and what he did in the Soviet Union and what it meant for Russia and what it meant for the rest of the world. And, you know, the political obituaries have been written, you know, in the hundreds. Um, I th one of the things that has not been mentioned, I don't think, in any of them is that Gorbachev released um, Andrei Sakharov from internal exile um, in 1985, I think it was, 1986 perhaps. And... Um, Andrei Sakharov, of course, was a nuclear scientist in Russia, in the Soviet Union, forgive me, and was placed into internal exile for his criticism of the war in Afghanistan. Um, Gorbachev released him. It was 1986. And what that gesture did was it essentially gave the rest of the country, led perhaps by Sakharov, to engage in a public discussion of collective and individual memory. Um, and, and this took conversations that were once only held in sort of smoky kitchens and put them onto the public arena. And, and so I think when we reminisce about Gorbachev, if, if anybody does actually reminisce, um, we might want to add to his political obituaries the fact that he returned the concept of public memory to the Soviet Union. Which is something that arguably the country is defined by. I don't think I've ever met a Russian who isn't entirely stitched into their, nat their national public memory. Well, exactly. I mean, look, look, Russia is a country that has been asking questions about itself from its very origins. Um, you know, is it Western? Is it Asian? Is it, um, you know, part of Europe? Um, but what happens when, you know, the geographical mass of the country um, is, is mostly located in Asia? Is it a religious country? Is it an atheist country? Um, how is it an authoritarian? Is it autocratic? Is it was it um, a, an emerging democracy? Was it an emerging capitalist economy? This is um, perhaps all countries are like this, but 
um, a country with a history like Russia and the Soviet Union is perhaps uniquely introspective in that respect. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you have, at the time when, when Gorbachev was in power, you have Germany with the with the reunification and the relationship between Kohl and Gorbachev, wasn't it? I mean, this is a time when once you have Gorbachev and when, when you have the, the wheels start to turn and the motions start to, to, to flow, it becomes absolutely impossible to stop, doesn't it? And you, you have both Kohl and Gorbachev meeting in, 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 the, in the 1990s to try and to sort of say, OK, how do we actually remap this part of the world, Europe, Asia and, you know, and, and countries which have been divided and divided and divided? Well, it's, it would not have happened this way without Gorbachev. There's no question. And he, he was the one who started turning the wheel. And the, the fact that the fall of the wall in November 89 happened peacefully and the tanks did not roll onto the streets and people were not shot was because four weeks before that, Gorbachev was in Berlin, um, the event of the 40 years of the GDR, uh, festivities, and where he said, um, if if this government doesn't react to what the people want, it will fail. Um, but just coming back to what Charles said before, I mean, I'm not quite sure whether Russia really questions itself, because the fact that we are where we are with Putin is because he didn't allow anymore to have the well, the question or the answers had to be only the ones of the narrative how Putin wants Russia to be seen. And I remember starkly that a couple of weeks before the war started, he closed down, or his authorities closed down Memorial, which was the one and only left NGO, a fantastic organization in Moscow that was still working on the um, atrocities and crimes of the Stalinist uh, times and, and beyond. And from then on, there's nobody anymore who is allowed to question what Russia maybe has done wrong in its history. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, Russia is an incredibly proud country. It's incredibly patriotic. Um, it is, in certain respects, um, chauvinistic um, in, in its outlook. And I think that um, that's very strong, but I think it's primarily superficial. And, and the stronger you see that grow... I think it's more and more a reflection of a certain level of questioning beneath the surface um, about who we are and what we are and where we're going. Um, because don't forget, this is a country that has now been sort of shuttled back and forth between pillars of political and economic extremes. And, and I think that that kind of turbulence and, and disruption and instability um, on the surface provokes an awful lot of chauvinism, but beneath it all, a lot of questions. It's an interesting thing you pick up there. I think Tony Barber, the, um, the, the, the FT's Europe editor, said yesterday that um, he, Gorbachev had an impossible job. He had to free up the Soviet Union while keeping it intact. Impossible to do. Yeah, it, it was impossible. And of course, um, what... It was a bit like a, like an avalanche because you saw it in Hungary. It it, it was happening um, and very quickly. I mean, how how quickly also the German reunification happened by just a month later Gorbachev meeting with Helmut Kohl, the famous meeting in the Caucasus, and basically Gorbachev saying, "If you want to join NATO, if you want to be." the whole of Germany part of the Western alliances, you can do that. I mean, it's, I mean, thinking back, it was incredibly for this to happen, but Gorbachev understood he couldn't, he couldn't stop it because this is what the people wanted. But of course, one of the consequences was that not only the Warsaw Pact then 
collapsed and countries uh, went independent, but also the Soviet Union. And that, of course, Russians never forgave him. And that's why his his legacy, while in Germany, for example, he is a he's a he's a figure that is very much admired and, and loved. It's the complete opposite in Russia. It is, absolutely. And and people are looking ahead now to the future, Charles. I mean, um, when can Russia ever see another Gorbachev? Because whoever takes on the mantle after Putin will have almost have a have a have a job as huge as Gorbachev's was to 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 unpick the work from the last 20, 30 years. Well, that's right. And I and I think when we look back at the incredible centrifugal forces that Gorbachev unleashed with Glasnost and, and Perestroika, I think the lesson for modern Russian leadership is it's probably better to keep that all bottled up. Um, and there are several different scenarios to a post-Putin Russia, which one way or another will happen as it will happen to us all. Um, and it could get even more authoritarian than it is now. Um, it could become more liberal, but there isn't right now. There, there, there just is not a young, emerging, sort of liberal, democratic, political elite in Russia that has largely been squelched or it's emigrated. Uh, and so the future of Russia for the time being is probably more of the same. And it, it echoes a comment that was made in the late 1980s by, by a Soviet official who said that you can deconstruct the USSR, but it will always be run by the KGB. Um, we talk about we talk about institutional resilience. Um, the institutions of state security in Russia are among its most resilient. And although it is interesting, you know, if you just want to think about one thing, and that is when the statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky was torn off, and he was, of course, the founder of the KGB, um, and it was torn off of its pedestal um, during these incredibly turbulent days. Um, there was a decision, and, and it stands in front of KGB headquarters, and, and there was something symbolic of that moment that in spite of the institutional resilience of the state security organs in Russia, um, on that particular night, the reason why Dzerzhinsky was, was, was taken off of his pedestal was that the KGB did nothing. It's 9.34 here in London. You're with Monocle on Sunday. Stephanie Wilson and Charles Hecker are joining me around the table. But let's uh, head over to Japan now, where we can get the latest from Fiona Wilson, our Tokyo Bureau Chief and Asia Editor. Good afternoon. Good evening, Fiona. Yes, hi, Emma. It is nearly evening. You're absolutely right. How goes it where you are? Very good. We're kind of, uh, you know, slowly coming to the end of summer here. Still pretty hot. It was in the 30s here today. Um, but yeah, you definitely feel a, a hint of uh, autumn coming. We've got typhoons knocking around Japan, which is uh, always happens this time of year. So you, you really feel that autumn is on its way. Never good. Um, let's have a look at what's happening in, 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 in the Japanese news. What's caught your eye? Well, I mean, obviously the big news here, and I think I talk about this almost every time I'm, I'm on the radio at Monaco, it's about is Japan ever going to open up to uh, visitors again? And we are going to see another change um, coming up 
this week, uh, September the 7th. The daily number of arrivals is increasing to 50,000. You know, they're going to drop the need for um, pre-departure testing if you're triple vaxxed. And also this slightly complicated situation with can tourists come to Japan? And that isn't really changing that much. You still have to come as part of a, a, a package, which I, d- I don't know how many people in Europe travel around the world uh, sort of on package tours. You don't have to be accompanied by a guide, but you do have to have your everything booked um, ahead of time. And just I think the idea is that uh, the government knows who to contact if you do turn out to be uh, COVID positive. So a bit of a change, but still, no, I'm afraid anyone planning a visit to Japan on their own will have to wait a bit longer. Charles, you would just raised your eyes then because if we have played the where would you live when you go on holiday game earlier on today. And, you know, when you know, we, I'll ask you where you would go, where you, where you would live if you had to go on holiday. Um, and Charles, you said that you would live in Tokyo. The, the fact is, is that it is so strange to think when, when you live like we do at the moment in a country where you can go anywhere and COVID is a thing of the past, that we're still dealing with a country which is, which is determining, which wants to know where you're having your lunch. That's right. The, the, the number one winner of, of the game of could I live here when I travel on business or, or for pleasure is Tokyo. And, and so I'm eagerly awaiting the moment where I might be able to go back either on a business trip or on a holiday um, and travel individually because that's one of the great joys of, of Japan is sort of strolling around independently and being taken by surprise by whatever comes around the corner at you. And it feels a little bit strange right now. Tokyo and, and Japan is such an outlier in the travel situation. And I sort of feel like I'm being told, don't come here by a country that is normally incredibly welcoming and and generous towards its visitors. Fiona, how bothered is Japan that Charles can't jump on a plane and, and head for lunch in, in, in Tokyo this evening? Or this well, excellent, excellent choice, Charles, by the way. I think uh, <laughs> Japan is a very good place to live. Tokyo, top of that list. I mean, it, it, it is a quite a strange situation, but I think what it is, is that it's just, it's gradual. And I think really the change will come. You know, I, I, I think they're just trying to keep everyone on board. There are more, there's another round of vaccinations due to start um, this month as well. And I think really, you know, everyone's asking all the sort of hospitality businesses, you can imagine, they really want people to come back. They want more people. I think they also have to take into consideration there's just the caution among the population, which, you know, I mean, Japan is a risk averse place. So it's just keeping everyone on board. But there's no doubt, you know, hotels, restaurants, these regional um, hotels, they really want to get people back. I mean, you also have to remember that Japan has a massive domestic tourism uh, business. And it's also about getting those people to travel around as much as they were. So that's also picking up. Um, but I, I, you know, I think it will come fairly soon. I don't, you know, I, I think that's, that what will happen is they'll show no, there's no catastrophes after this change next week. And then, and then, you know, we'll we'll see the full lifting. I think because what because travellers need still need to get a visa, don't they? And 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 mm. there's and there's a cap of fifty thousand. I mean, if someone said to me, okay, you can go to Japan, but you have to jump through these hoops, is there a fear perhaps that people, unlike Charles, who will be literally beating down the gate <laughs> to get onto the plane, there will be people who think can't be bothered with that. I'll go somewhere else that's got a slightly more open door. Yeah, I think that's true. There is a point. I mean, honestly, you know, I think. The consideration is the the voting population here right now. I think people know that, you know, we're constantly seeing this, you know, that people saying they're dying to come to Japan. And actually, if you're in Tokyo at the moment, it, it, it's 50,000 a day. But that also includes people coming back into Japan, you know, who maybe live here. But you do see more people around, definitely more visitors, people who don't live here. So I think people are 
you know, definitely coming in, maybe ostensibly for business, but they're they're tacking on some extra travel. Uh, so I just think it's a sort of slow opening. I, I and as you know, Charles said that there is a very warm welcome when you do get here. So I think uh, that won't change. So um, you know, just uh, hold on, it's coming. Let's move on to something which is very close to us here in in London, at least. Uh, It's a bit of a rarity and a novelty here in London at at Midori House too. I I don't know how we're going to go into this cleanly. Um, Toto Lose. Um, they make the most wonderful toilets, which if you're doing, I hate to say, if you're doing an early shift in the middle of winter here on The Globalist, then um, you you do appreciate the extra comfort of having a heated loo and um, maybe a jet of warm water, if, if, if that's what you're after. Um, but they're doing incredibly well, not just in Midori House, but also incredibly well in Japan, but outside in the, in the rest of the world, Fiona. Yes, I mean, Emma, if you didn't know what this thing was, you'd be wondering <laughs> what on earth are we talking about here with the warm jets of water? But I mean, you know, anyone who's been to Japan knows about these washlet uh, loos that you have here, heated seat, bit of a, a wash and blow dry situation. And Toto, absolutely market leaders. And the, just they are everywhere in Japan. If you were to go into a loo in a, you know, anywhere, a shopping centre, a station, um, the new public loos that have been built in my neighbourhood in Shibuya all you know, done with these wonderful Toto washlets. And I think that the great mystery for Toto is why isn't the rest of the world immediately clamoring to have these things? It's been a slow pickup overseas. But finally, thanks to COVID, here's one business that's absolutely booming because of COVID. Uh, People have been buying them overseas uh, more than ever before, you know, particularly when there was that, I don't know, it seems in the dim and distant past now, but the, the rush on loo paper, um, and so, you know, that the paperless loo really seemed to be uh, the answer. So they've, they've been releasing the figures and, yeah, they, they've done, done a quarter of a billion dollars of business overseas for the first quarter this year. So um, big markets for them, uh, America and China. I think China leads the way, America second. But, you know, it's been quite difficult to get into that American market. Easier in Asia, where I think people have been to Japan more. Um, but, uh, yeah, people are finally coming around to it. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is there is one at Midori House. Um, and and that's, that was always Toto's advertising uh, policy was always put them in places, put these washlets in strategic places so people can try them. That They think that once you try it, you'll, you'll never go back. Um- Stephanie, I don't know how to bring you into this one because Fiona has managed to deal with this in the most elegant manner. Um, But it does seem to be quite a civilised approach, doesn't it? And one wonders why the rest of the world hasn't seized upon this idea. It's 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 very civilized. It just makes me smile a lot because I use these fantastic toilets in here in the facilities this morning, and I was thinking in Germany we are only talking about now having cold showers, and this costs energy. It takes a lot of energy to heat the loose. So I was wondering when you will actually have to switch them off because it costs too much money. And even my 77-year-old mum, she's now only having cold showers back in Germany to get used to it for the winter. Goodness me. She needs to come over here. We'll warm her up in a moment. We'll we'll warm bits. Um, Mr. Hecke, maybe you could answer this because you've just mouthed me, I have one. You have one. Tell us about well, I mean, does your energy bill soar? Um, they're probably going to. And, and, and the answer to Stephanie's question about when do we switch them off is never. Um, <laughs> and and we, we will all make sacrifices and I will gladly, you know, pile on two or three sweaters um, just for the for the luxury of being able to keep my my Toto switched on all winter long. Um this taps into a, a rich stream of a seam of Japanomania, which I will restrain myself from getting into. But it 
once you have one, you just can't go back. So Ste- um, Stephanie Ever, the pragmatist, uh, Fiona, has obviously given the practical warnings about uh, about how much it's going to cost it to heat these things. Um, Charles is Charles is putting on an extra couple of layers so that he can keep his little treat. Um, Fiona, I mean, is this being discussed in, in, in Japan at all? I mean, you raise a very good point there. Uh, but I'm, I'm with Charles. You know, the lights are going off before the Toto washlet gets turned off. Um, absolutely. The heated Lucy in the winter, critical. And if you've, you know, if you've been in Japan, houses are really cold here in the winter. The, the washlet is pretty essential to warm up. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is a very good point. I mean, you know, the technology of the, the, the Toto washlet sounds very luxurious, but they work incredibly hard to make these things as low energy and also low water use as possible. So, um, they're using, you know, every model that comes out, the amount of water decreases. So uh, they're working hard on that. They're not going to be able to do it in time for this winter, are they? But, um, yeah, that is a very good point. But I think people here consider that that a sacrifice too far. Definitely. I, would, I, would, I think I'm veering towards Fiona and Charles here. You're, I think we need to ring your mum. <laughs> I mean, in, in Germany, they, they already uh, introduced a serious point, legislation, how to save energy. So, for example, in public buildings, um, the the legal temperature is going to be lowered down to 19 Celsius. They're not going to light uh, public monuments anymore. There are lots of measures now being taken uh, in Germany and other countries um, how to save energy, to avoid rationing of energy. And I found it absolutely coming back to Liz Truss. She said at the Hastings she wouldn't ration energy, which in this country is even more crazy to believe to say that because there is no country in Europe that loses so much heating because of the lack of insulated houses. For for every three pounds you spend on heating, one pound is immediately gone through the roofs or through the windows. So it's 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 really, it's a question that's coming around the corner. It is very close. And I, I, I think, uh, seriously, you have to switch off that loo. Charles. Well, I, I was just going to say that... that, that the, you, sorry, or do you want to spend your life on the loo from now on? Don't tempt me. <laughs> um, the... The level, the seriousness and the level of public discourse on these issues in Germany is very impressive and it is absent from a lot of other countries. And so I think it's smart what's happening in Germany on a number of levels. And this is all about sort of social cohesion and social buy-in and we're in this together and, and this is the right thing to do. That conversation, apart from a fairly decent amount of public whinging, is largely absent in the UK. And I kind of wish it was happening and I wish that there were some very obvious public gestures towards energy saving. Um, My personal pet peeve on this, forgive me, is shops on the high street who keep their doors wide open in the summer, pumping air conditioning out into the streets. Um, That and the opposite effect of, of pumping heating out into the streets in the winter has got to stop. Fiona, thank you so much. And if anybody gets worried about whether Charles's house is warm enough, the smallest room in the house will actually have something operating as a, as a, as a radiator. I think we're all going to move into Charles's bathroom. Fiona Wilson in Tokyo, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain is a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise. From its rich cultural traditions to its landscape that encompasses mountains and beaches, it's a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Want to amble from hotel room to urban beach and while away a summer's day? Or take in the view from atop a Mallorcan mountain? The Spanish landscape offers a wealth of activities to suit any taste. 
From the sand of Formentera to the wild waves of the Costa de la Lutz, beaches abound. The coves of the Costa Brava, the endless stretches of Andalusian shoreline, the verdant coasts of Asturias, Cantabria and the Basque Country. There's a seaside style to float anyone's boat. For those who prefer to tour on two wheels, Mallorca's Tramontana mountain range is unmatched for its beauty. Try your hand at something new, whether that's kayaking, canoeing, climbing, camping, fishing or sailing. But if all that activity seems a little too much, Spain is home to some of the best spas and retreats in all of Europe. It's truly everything you're dreaming of this weekend, and it's in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday, on Monocle 24. you're back with Monocle on Sunday uh, in the last few minutes while you've been listening to that Charles Hacker has been telling us how much we have to save to get a Toto Washlet because I think we're all sort of going to have a little fund. Uh, while we continue our discussion we'll bring you the latest on that in a moment. Let's hear from Andrew Muller with uh, the week's Stranger Stories. We learned this week that maybe former US President Donald Trump should stop hiring lawyers who blue-tack their business cards to the inside of bus station phone booths. We learned that Trump's learned friends had asked for something or someone called a special master to review the documents recently removed from Trump's Florida home by the FBI. We swiftly learned that the US Department of Justice may have seen this one coming. With almost suspicious haste, the DOJ released a 36-page filing including photographs of some of what they found at Mar-a-Lago, i.e. a bunch of files that really do not look like the sort of thing a private citizen should have stuffed into his desk drawers, which is to say they were stamped with words like secret and top secret in writing so big even Donald Trump could have read it. Perhaps even Eric. In a nicely artful touch, the feds spread these out on the floor next to a box containing some of Trump's extensive collection of framed magazine covers featuring himself, which meant we also learned of the former president's absolutely ghastly taste in carpets. Seriously, it looks like something your shoes would stick to in a provincial spoons. But we've learned most of all, possibly, that Donald Trump is going to struggle to sweep all this... Under the rug. But we learned that the FBI may shortly have legal difficulties of their own. For we learned that the Bureau is being sued by Mickey Dolan's Out of the Monkeys, if you'd now like to cross that off your 21st century bingo card. 37. Settled down. Dolenz, the last surviving member of the group, remains curious to see the complete file the feds assembled on the I'm Not Your Stepping Stone hitmakers during the strange, perfervid years of the Vietnam War, when it was believed in certain paranoid circles that the Pleasant Valley Sunday songsmiths were dangerous subversives peddling drugs, hula hoops, chewing gum, and/or communism to the kids. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Well, quite. 
We learned on looking into it further that the file was in fact released in 2011, but with lots of stuff redacted, and what Dolenz now seeks, we learned, is the unexpurgated version which will lay bare the complete extent of his group's treacherous depravity. We learned upon as reading as much of the file as is available that the already published evidence is damning enough. Our imagination boggles indeed at what horrors must lurk beneath the black sharpie ink if these findings by the FBI's diligent undercover agents are any indication. As will now be solemnly read by Monocle 24's Won't Someone Think of the Children desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The television showed the monkeys features four young men who dress as beatnik types. In concert, they used a screen set up behind the performers who played certain instruments and sang as a combo. During the concert, subliminal messages were depicted on the screen. Left-wing innovations of a political nature. We learned, however, that Mickey Dolenz clearly has better taste in lawyers than Donald Trump. Dolenz's attorney, Mark Zaid, gave as his reason for pursuing the case that he thought it would be, and we quote, fun. Elsewhere. Blazing on a sunny afternoon. We learned that Montenegro's laziest man is, when roused, startlingly energetic. We learned, actually, we already knew this, but we're aiming for rhythmic consistency here, that the Balkan Republic stages an annual reclining and or reposing competition, a joke at its own expense. Among the nations of the former Yugoslavia, the stereotype of Montenegrins is that they tend towards the idol, as captured by such local gags as the following. What is the Montenegrin record for the 100 metres? 70 metres. Here all week. Or as the Montenegrin comedian might have had it, here till Tuesday lunchtime. See, that would have been funnier, certainly more in keeping with the bit, if you'd just done the rim shot without the cymbal crash, as if you simply couldn't be bothered finishing it. There it is. Anyway, we learned that Montenegro's 12th annual lying down competition had been won by one Zarko Pijanovic, who racked up a solid 60 hours of inertia to claim the grand prize of 350 euros. This was short of the record of 117 hours set by Dubraka Aksic in 2021, but you can only beat what's in front of you. We then learned, however, that Mr. Pianovich may be less relaxed than he appears. We learned that he had taken severe umbrage with the coverage of his accomplishment by one local newspaper, which instead of hailing him a national champion, declared him Montenegro's biggest deadbeat at which Mr. Pijanovic presented himself at the newspaper's offices and set vigorously about the fixtures and fittings until removed by police, as will be evoked by the ensuing soundscape. Still, say what you like, he wasn't going to take it lying down. Aww. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks, Andrew. I quite fancy being a Montenegrin if it involves quite a lot of lying down. I don't know about you, Stephanie. Oh, Montenegro is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. The beaches and the, the, the cliffs, it's a fantastic country. 
rapidly moving up my bucket list because everyone who comes back from Montenegro says how beautiful and gorgeous it is. And I've been in the neighborhood and and, and it's the right kind of place. Okay, well, let's uh, put that on the list of where to go and can I live here. Um, What what else is uh, knocking around in the papers? We've got about three or four minutes. So let's see. Let's see what we want the world to, to, to leave this program. We're thinking I need to read up more on this. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the royals. I mean, not with the gossip, <laughs> not with the gossip. I think that the royals is a fantastic story because you have the person, personalities, of course, um, especially the woman, Queen Diana, Meghan. Uh, you can't avoid her. Uh, and you also have this struggle of this uh, more than a thousand year old institution to survive, which is a real challenge for them in the in the modern world. Um, and it's it is very historic. I think that for the first time on Tuesday, whoever is going to be the prime minister will have to fly to Balmoral. So uh, the prime minister Boris Johnson is going to fly there to say goodbye to the Queen. When he leaves, the new prime minister comes in and then flies back to London to give the first speech. And at the same time, of course, we have that um, very much quoted interview by Meghan. She again, she couldn't resist to uh, present herself and her grief with the royal family and the uh, U.S. media. And now it's starting to go really downhill. Um, she's she's getting so much bad press, not in, only in the U.K., where she's, I think, used to, but even in the U.S. And um, so they're coming to Europe. They're actually in, in London this week. They're also in Dusseldorf, interestingly, in my hometown this week uh, because of the Invictus Games. So... Um, that's the story of the next days, and I'll enjoy it. Emma, this may be sort of old hat to you, but but it's almost impossible to overestimate how fascinating this institution is to people who are not originally from the United Kingdom. Be and my you... guest on this one, because I'm giving you blank looks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in fact, on this, this idea of political transition and the role of the Queen and the fact that she's not doing it from Buckingham Palace, but rather doing it from Balmoral, um, is something that was dissected down to the most granular level in papers all around the world and not even so much here in the UK because of the constitutional role of the Queen. And, you know, because the question was, well, why not just skip it? Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll catch up some, some other time. Um, and how critical that moment of transition is. And, of course, it's also supposed to be the time when the prime minister, the incoming prime minister, kisses the Queen's hand. And there was all it's a sorts kissing of hands. That's right. It? And there was all kinds of discussion about whether that actually happens. Um, and so this is a topic of bottomless fascination all around the world. I'm more fascinated into how Boris Johnson gets back to London because when he's no longer prime minister, you know, when he's in London, he can just I don't know hail a cab. But if someone sort of sent him up to Balmoral and they just went, actually, that's not your plane anymore. That's someone else's plane. Well, it is still his plane because until uh, the next prime minister has really got to the to the Queen, so he probably has to run for his plane to make sure he's on it before his uh, successor arrives at Balmoral. I'm sure he they got the choreo- choreography right that he gets a, a, a proper plane back. We'll watch it this week with, well, you'll watch it with interest. I'll just... <laughs> Just take it as another day in the United Kingdom. Uh, thank you so much, Charles Hecker, Stephanie Boltson, for joining me in the studio. That's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to my guests, uh, Fiona Wilson in Tokyo and Tyler Brule in Portugal as well. Many thanks to our producers, Reese James and Nora Hall. More Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week at the helm. It will be Tyler back in Zurich. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs>